Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The Diane Reem Show is one of the most popular programs on WITF and across the country. Some two and a half million people tune in to hear Ms. Reem's timely and thoughtful show every week. Diane announced she will retire at the end of this year and much of her time will be spent advocating on behalf of aid and dying for the terminally ill. Diane Reem became one of the faces of the Right to Die movement when her husband John, who was suffering from Parkinson's disease, died in 2014 after 10 days of not eating food or drinking fluids. Diane writes about her life without her husband and her grief in the newly published book, On My Own. Diane Reem's On My Own is WITF and Aaron's book's pick of the month for the month of March. Diane Reem, welcome to Smart Talk on WITF. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you. Your book is unique on several levels. It's part autobiography. It's part diary of the past year and a half of your life. I can also see it as a bit of a love letter to your husband, John, but it is deeply personal. Maybe one of the most personal accounts I think I've ever read. What story did you want to tell with your book? Well, I think if you're asking me for the nugget of what I wanted to tell. It is about life and the end of life. It's about a marriage and the end of marriage. And it's certainly about death and how I believe and my husband believed that we should be able to choose to die when that time arrives, when we know we no longer wish to keep going. And we're going to talk about all those things, too. But I I have to say that uh, listeners to your show, and they can hear you every day from 10 to 12 here on WITF, when you host your show, you're in control. You're the one that sometimes have to ask those tough questions. But in the book, you show a vulnerable side that may surprise many people out there. Well, I think most of us at some part of ourselves are truly vulnerable and no more vulnerable than at the time of the death of a loved one. And in this case, of course, John and I were married for 54 years we had what I would call a tremendously successful marriage with two wonderful children. And we had the kinds of problems that an awful lot of people have but never talk about. And it seemed to me that if I were going to write this book and be totally honest about what and who we were, that I was going to put in the warts and all rather than gloss over a marriage that had lots of bumps, had many ups and downs, had periods when John didn't speak to me, I didn't speak to him, when we spent too much time disagreeing and even quarreling. 
but one thing about which we both agreed very, very strongly was the right to choose when we wanted to die. And I believe very strongly in choice in dying, and I also believe that the country is ready to hear about the whole idea of aid in dying. We've seen California uh, pass a law, which will be in effect for 10 years, and then they will re-examine it. We've seen Oregon's law carried out very successfully in which doctors provide the necessary medications to individuals who have been diagnosed with fatal illnesses who may be within six months of dying and who want to end their lives on their terms with families surrounding them, with friends, loved ones. Nobody wants to die alone. Nobody wants to suffer the indignities of loss of all facilities. And John had reached that point. So I wanted to write about that honestly. I wanted to write about our marriage and our children. So I hope that the book doesn't shock anyone, but rather informs them and informs them honestly. John passed away on June 23rd, 2014. In the weeks before he died, uh, he didn't want to live the way that he was at the time. He was suffering from Parkinson's disease. You asked the doctor, or the two of you asked the doctor about getting help, and the doctor said, no, there's nothing we can do in that area. So John decided that he would not eat, he would not drink fluids, and that's how he would end his life. It took 10 days. What were those 10 days like? They were excruciating, to put it mildly. Um, You know, you can live for a fairly long time without food. Uh, You can go 40, even 50 days without food. But it's the lack of water that forces the organs to shut down. During the first two days without food and water, John was not only quite well, he was cheerful. He said he felt as though he had taken his life back into his own hands. And here was a man who knew that he would soon die, but was cheerful because he knew he was not going to fall into further degradation. Scott, he could not use his hands, he could not walk, he could not feed himself, he could not bathe himself. It was sad, sad for him. And yet that first day after he had made his decision, 
I took a photograph album to assisted living where he was, a photograph album I had made of his childhood um, through his high school years. And we sat on the bed together and we looked at those photographs and we enjoyed looking at each image and telling each other stories. And we had a wonderful time together, even knowing that the end was close. The following day, he fell asleep and he didn't wake up. So, you know, there were moments when I confess I wanted to put a spoonful of applesauce to his mouth or put a few drops of water in his mouth, but I knew that that would be going against what he wanted. He said, I am ready to die, and he was. Was he in any kind of pain? I hope to God he was not. His um, body showed no indications of pain. From time to time, his face would sort of grimace. Um, His uh, arms would flail, but there was no indication of pain. Uh, I think for the last few days... Uh, the doctor began giving him very small doses of morphine so that if there was any pain, he certainly didn't feel it. When John passed away, when he died, when he took his last breath, did you have a sense of relief? Mind you, I was not there. I got there 20 minutes too late. I had fallen asleep the night before on two chairs next to his bed with my little dog Maxie on my stomach. And about two o'clock in the morning, I got up and started typing on my iPad just sort of what I was thinking, what I was feeling. And And then at about 7.30 in the morning, his caregiver came in, as he always did at that hour. And so I said, I'll run home and get a shower and feed and walk Maxie, and then I'll come back. And his caregiver called and said, Diane, come quick. I think John has just passed. And by the time I got there, indeed, he had been gone for about 20 minutes. So I certainly felt no relief at that moment. Um, What I felt was utter sadness and utter loss and a feeling of being both bereft and alone, even though my son was there with me. My little dog was there with me. 
you know, you see someone you've loved and lived with for 54 years lying motionless and breathless on the bed, relief certainly doesn't come to mind. The reason I ask that question is because I've spoken to, and even people in my own family who have lost a loved one uh, due to Alzheimer's, not necessarily uh, Parkinson's, but after a long-term illness. And I've often heard them say that it's almost a relief because, and they often say almost a relief. No one comes out and says, oh, yeah, boy, am I glad that uh, you know, he or she is uh, now in a better place. But they say almost a relief because of the suffering, because of the pain, and what that loved one was going through. So that was, that was the reason I asked that question. I, I certainly understand that perspective. I think you also have to realize, however, that um, John's mind was in really quite good shape so that I hadn't lost him in that way. I knew he felt lost physically. He did not feel lost mentally. And I loved his mind. His mind was an extraordinary one. He was my teacher for so long in every way. Um, So, no, I did not feel relief until much later. Um, when I finally confronted the quiet and aloneness of my own dwelling, I think that's when I finally felt relief long after the memorial service, long after everyone, friends, family, had gone. I think that's when. I felt the relief. When I talk to guests about end-of-life issues, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, uh, palliative care and hospice are usually the focuses of the conversation. Unless the topic is specifically right to die, it isn't discussed or even considered by many in the medical community. And I know in your book you say this, and I've heard other people say it as well, that today's medical providers, today's doctors, that they don't get a lot of training in the areas of of end-of-life care, end-of-life issues, and they should. That's beginning to change. There are new classes, courses being held for doctors um, to teach them about how to speak honestly with individuals who have reached that end-of-life point, that they wish to be able to talk more openly, and doctors need to learn to listen more carefully. You know, there are those who would wish to have palliative care for quite a while, and forever and those who wish it should be given palliative care. On the other hand, there 
are a growing number of people, and especially with the baby boomers aging, who are saying palliative care is simply prolonging a life that has no longer meaning for me. And therefore, I am ready to move on, to take the next journey. That's how John thought of it. He was ready to move to the next journey. His own book that he wrote, a book of both poetry and prose, was titled Onward Journey. So I truly know that he felt he was going on another journey and did not wish any longer to be held in this mortal life. You became a voice for the Right to Die movement in this country. You've touched on it during our short time together today, but what is your vision and your ultimate goal? My vision, my ultimate goal is primarily for myself that when the time comes, I will be in conversation with a physician, a sympathetic physician who will hear what I have to say, that the laws will be by then ready to acknowledge that those people who feel that they are ready to move on will be given the means by which to do so. You say, I have become an advocate or a spokesperson. The Washington Post called me that. I never called myself that. It is something that happened because John died the way he did, because he had asked for help in dying, and because the laws of Maryland would not permit his doctor to in any way help him die. I believe that each of us deserves the right to choose. Um, and that those who choose to simply be kept comfortable with palliative care should be given that right, and that those of us who wish to end our lives because of loss of dignity, because we have a fatal illness which is going nowhere but down, that we too should have that right to choose. So that's my vision, and that's what I'm going to be speaking about as I go across the country. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest is Diane Ream. You can hear the Diane Ream Show every day on WITF, or at least Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. She also is the author of a new book, On My Own. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, your marriage, Diane, uh, with your husband, John, or his nickname that you had was Scoop. Uh, how do you get that nickname, by the way? 
His father was sports editor of the Paris Herald Tribune. He and John's mother met when they lived in Paris. She was working as a runway model at the time for the couturier houses in Paris. And John's father, as I said, worked on the Paris Herald Trib. He was sports editor, and there were three other men on the sports desk at the, um, or at least on the news desk at the Trib, whose wives were pregnant. And John's mother was the only one who had a boy, and therefore John Rain became the scoop in the newsroom. Now, that's how sexism rears its ugly head. <laughs> if it had been a girl, I'm not sure she would have been called scoop. How often did you call John scoop? Oh, my gosh. Uh, throughout... Probably he asked me to start calling him Scoop probably about 10 years into our marriage. His name, of course, John Bartram Ream. Um, he really loved the playfulness of the word Scoop, and so I called him Scoopy, um, and he loved that. You were married for 54 years, and you described your marriage earlier as tremendously successful, but you also talked about some of the ups and downs as well. What do you mean? I'm going to, this is kind of a two part question. What did you mean by a tremendously successful marriage? And then let's talk about those ups and downs. When you have a couple who are so enamored of each other, who work together to support each other, who believe in the same ideals, who believe in caring for children as we did, who enjoy each other in every way as much as we did, and then who raise two absolutely gorgeous and wonderful children together as we did. I call that a successful marriage. You're referring, I presume, to the confession that John made. Yes near the end of his life when he said to me, Diane, I have a confession to make to you. I was deliberately emotionally abusive to you throughout our marriage or portions thereof. And, you know, Scott, in my heart, I knew it. It wasn't something I didn't know. I wondered why, and I asked him why he thought he had been that way. He really couldn't answer the question. 
I suspect it was in part because he had never completely and openly rebelled against his own mother, which most kids need to do somewhere along the way, recognizing that some separation is an important part of growth. Um, but he also wondered whether perhaps he would have been better off never having married at all. But then he said, but then I would never have gotten to know you or David or Jenny. So in the end, you know, I think uh, there's not a single one of us who doesn't regret some aspect of our lives, whether we're single or married, whether we've chosen one profession over another, whether we've hurt someone or not, there are regrets. And my sadness is that we wasted so much time in anger, so much precious time of that 54 years in anger. And had we been more mature, had we been two different people, had I not been more demanding, had I been a person who simply accepted John's need for aloneness better than I did, maybe it wouldn't have been so difficult. But those are all things one regrets. But that's life. Your book's title, On My Own, describes the story very well. I want to touch on a, a couple aspects of that. Uh, the book is very much about grief. How did you grieve? I worked. I came back to work a week after John's memorial service. Um, I accepted as many invitations to speak and be with friends and travel as much as I could. Um, I think like many others, I simply ran from grief um, through my work. But at the same time, even within my work, I would experience grief. I would experience those feelings of being out of touch with myself. Even while I was on the air, I might be distracted or my head might go elsewhere even while I was in conversation with people on the air. But then again, I think that's normal. You know, there are no rules for grieving. Each of us 
does it in our own way. And um, frankly, I don't think there's such a thing as closure. I don't think I will ever stop grieving for John. I think the manner of grieving will take on a different form, and he'll always be in my heart. I talk to him every day. He talks back. I spend lots of time with my little dog, and John loved that little dog. We sort of relate to each other through Maxie. Um, so, you know, as a widow, I am just as much a human being as I ever was with the same kinds of feelings, the same kinds of concerns, maybe slightly less now that I have lived through the loss of the man I loved for so many years. I wish we had more time to talk, but just a few more questions. Your show has been a major part of your life since 1979. Uh, You mentioned in the book how you will enjoy not getting up so early in the morning. But the other part of it is, (laughs) the other part of it is, what will you do after retirement? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to be doing so many things. I'll have an office here at WAMU. I will continue to be a part of the station in many different ways, all of which have not yet clearly been outlined. I'll be traveling the country speaking about the right to die. I will continue to appear in a play uh, by Trish Radenberg titled Surviving Grace, all about a woman, a vibrant woman in her mid-50s who falls into Alzheimer's. I play that woman. We perform that play here in Washington, in Los Angeles, San Diego, Indianapolis, uh, Raleigh. We'll continue to perform that play. I will be working on behalf of Alzheimer's, working on behalf of Parkinson's, working on behalf of the right to die, and staying involved here at WAMU. I think I'll be quite happily busy. I don't know if you remember this or not, but when you were here at WITF, I asked you what you would be doing if uh, you weren't hosting a talk show. You said it was the first time you were asked that, asked that question, and you said you would like to perform on stage. So now it sounds as if you're getting that opportunity. Uh, have you enjoyed that? Very, very much, and uh, I must confess, it's a reading of the play as opposed to an a performance of the play, so I don't have to memorize lines 
and can simply stand with my fellow cast members and read from a script, but it's wonderful, Scott. I really, really enjoy it. So it's one of the things I will be doing. Diane Ream, thank you very much for being on the program today. And thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We are in the midst of National Court Reporting and Captioning Week. Court reporters have one of the most important jobs in our legal system, but probably are often taken for granted. Those who caption for TV shows provide a great service to deaf or TV viewers who uh, have some issues with their hearing. Our guest today to talk about this is Gail McLucas, who is part owner of GLFM Reporting, LLC. Ms. McLucas, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thank you for having me. And again, this is one of those jobs that I think a lot of people kind of take for granted. You've seen all the court court TV shows. If you've been in a courtroom, I know that the times I've been in a courtroom, many times the eyes right away go to the court reporter because it's something unusual. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Maybe unusual is not the best way to describe it, but it's not one of those occupations, one of those jobs that many people have. And unless you are in the court system or somehow you see behind the scenes of TV captioning, you don't often see that. But I said that to you this morning that uh, court reporters often are taken for granted and you kind of nodded to them. You, you kind of agree with that? I do. I do. The court reporter plays a very prominent role in a courtroom or in a deposition setting. Uh, pre uh, preserving the written record for future use. Every word that is spoken in a courtroom, every word that is spoken in a deposition is recorded by the court reporter in a on a machine that is later transcribed into a booklet form. Counsel use that transcript later on to uh, litigate their case. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it is, and I say we, meaning society as a whole, kind of take court reporters for granted? I think they take them for granted because they don't know about court reporting. I didn't know about court reporting. I was at uh, Hagerstown Business College, and I saw young women carting suitcases back and forth to classrooms. I stopped one one day, and I said, what are you carrying to class? And she opened this case and showed me a stenograph machine. I said, what do you do with that? Oh, I record testimony in a courtroom. I had never heard of court reporting. I went back to my high school counselor and said, did you ever hear of this? No. Nobody knew what court reporting was. Well, in my senior year, I didn't want to take a math course, so I chose typing. And I loved working on a keyboard. So... I thought, this is really interesting to uh, sit in a courtroom, hear the drama of a case. At that time, I thought it was just strictly courtroom, and I pursued the career, and I've not looked back one day since. Now, that is a big part of uh, national court reporting uh, week this week, is that you're encouraging, you're recruiting 
uh, younger people, I guess it doesn't have to be younger people, just anyone, uh, you're recruiting people to get into the business, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. The um, average age of the court reporter today is 51 years. We have 70% of our makeup of court reporters are 51 years of age. Wow, 70%. 70%. So by 2018, we are looking in this industry to fulfill 5,500 positions in court reporting. Um, nationwide? Nationwide. Okay, okay. Of which Pennsylvania happens to be the fifth in demand. Um, National Court Reporting Association, NCRA, did a consultant um, report back in 2013 and 14, and it was an industry outlook. And they came up with all this data, uh, the average age of the court reporter, how many positions are open. They uh, queried the states. And Pennsylvania is fifth in line for needing court reporters in the next um, three years. Now, I want to get into some stories and exactly what you do, but while we're talking about this, I mean, are these good-paying jobs? They are. The average uh, salary for a court reporter out of school is forty-three dollars to $45,000 a year. That, on the heels of being a course that is generally two years in length versus your four-year college degree. So many, uh, I think, uh, high schools and um, seniors in high schools these years are thinking that they need to be in a four-year college academia. This offers a two-year degree and at a fraction of the cost of college education. And you're almost guaranteed if you um, mentor a um, an experienced court reporter, you can almost uh, have a job by the time you graduate uh, court reporting school. Now, I just wanted to clarify, when you said 43 to 45 out of school, meaning first year you would be hired at, a, at that salary? Yes, yes. Scott, that's unbelievable, but yes. Now, that's that's widespread. That is widespread, and it varies greatly. I mean, your bigger cities, of course, your salaries are going to be higher. Um, the more um, education or the certifications that you have, your courts tend to pay a, a dividend, uh, a higher salary for those that have more certifications. Um, but yes, it's a... It's a well-paying job. It, it really is. Uh, that probably would surprise some of our listeners out there. All right, so let's talk about exactly what you do. Now, you were employed. You're in your own business now. You're part owner of your own business. You kind of you freelance. Correct. Uh, but before, when you first got out of school, who did you, uh, who did you become employed by? I worked for York County Courts. Uh, I started in 1974, and I worked there until 1981. And I was an what they call an official reporter. You're you're uh, hired by a government agency. I worked for the County of York. Um, at that point, I wanted to uh, start a family, and I wanted more flexibility with my schedule, so I chose freelancing, and I actually worked for Geiger Luria in 1982, and then um, uh, we joined hands again back in uh, 
January of 2014 to form Geiger, Luria, Phileas, and McLucas. In the freelance world, we do basically pretrial depositions. The attorneys hire us to take depositions. Um, they're allowed to find what evidence is going to be produced at trial. And a lot of times through that evidence being presented before trial begins, they can settle a case or they take it to trial and the jury decides uh, how to find in that particular matter. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but why is this job, why is this position so important? It's so important because what goes on in a deposition or a courtroom or as you see on TV, the captioning, the spoken word is captured in the moment. Um, the ability to write that word as it's spoken and have it appear is vitally important to counsel when they are preparing a case for trial. And the English language is the hardest language I, I know for. Well, I've, we've heard many people <laughs> say that. People who come to this country and want to learn English have said, oh, English is difficult to learn. English is very difficult. A very three, a very simple three sentence, uh, three word sentence. I don't know. As a court reporter, you need to know that that witness is saying, I don't, K-N-O-W, know, or I don't, comma, know, N-O. And when you're writing that, you need to know exactly in what context to write it. Uh, in medical terminology, hyper and hypo makes a vast difference on the condition of the patient that you're talking about your prefixes, your suffixes. A prime candidate for court reporting is someone who loves the English language, who loves English class, uh, reads very, it reads a lot, um, and is willing to take the time to learn the machine and build speed. Every day is a test. Every day you learn something new. You learn a new word. You meet new people, and that, I think, is what makes this career so interesting. Concentration level. I would imagine that you have to concentrate during that deposition, during that trial, during that proceeding, uh, you know, whatever you're, you're, you're reporting on, that you really have to pay attention the entire time, that there is not one second you can take off. That is very true. That is very true. And so many times we become... Um, we're there, we're doing our job, but everybody else doesn't realize we're there. It's hard sometimes for counsel that fly in on a plane, they need to get a deposition taken. They've studied this case for two to three years before they bring it to a deposition. They know all the aspects of it, and all of a sudden, they have 40 minutes before they need to catch a, tra or a train or a plane, and they're flying through words. And, um, yes, it's very difficult. And you, you know, the concentration level is paramount. You need to stay with what the topic is being spoken about, yes. Afterwards, are you tired? Exhausted. And, and a long deposition. And especially if there are no breaks offered 
there are times that I work, I started a job at nine o'clock in the morning and six and seven o'clock that night, I am still writing. And if there are no breaks given, I am exhausted. It's a mental exhaustion. Well, you see, that's just it. That's what I was getting at. Yes. Is that when you have to concentrate for that long a period of time and you're focused for even a couple hours afterwards, you, you must yes. be exhausted because uh, you're not relaxed. So, you're not. <laughs> no. Uh, our guest during this portion of the program is Gail McLucas, was part owner of GLFM Reporting LLC. We're in the midst of National Court Reporting and Captioning Week, kind of an interesting uh, occupation. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. That's 1-800-729-7532. All right, so what doesn't the public know about your job that they should? Um, there are schools available, not many, Compared to many years ago, there's one in Philadelphia. There was one in Pittsburgh. There's also one that we have recently contacted that has an online course. Um, <clears throat> as I said before, they are a fraction of a cost of a four-year university. Um, and they, uh, in addition to uh, the basic subjects that you need to take, they deal with the speed and and writing the uh, testimony. Uh, there are no letters on the keyboard that we use. Uh, they're all black keys. You use um, a series of keys to make a word. A TPH is a an initial letter N, and you learn the alphabet. And if you ever uh, watch a court reporter in a courtroom or a public setting, their fingers seem to be flying across the keyboard but that's taken years of practice and hearing different words and making um, abbreviations for long words. Uh, in my dictionary, cardiovascular, which would be a multisyllable word, is a, a two-stroke in my dictionary. Okay, so what, that what, can, what's the two strokes? What uh, are the uh, two strokes? Uh, cardiovascular is a C and an F uh, with, a, with the two hands. Why the F? Vask for vascular. So you use some form of the words. You use something that's in the word. Um, Y-A-R-D, which is yard, but in my dictionary, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. So you make these brief forms so that you can keep up with the speaker and uh, keep writing. Now, we have a photograph. Uh, you bought, you brought your equipment in today, and we have a photograph on our website, witf.org, where you can see it, you're doing it. But uh, your equipment, I noticed that you had a laptop alongside that was kind of printing out the words as you were typing in. I don't, is, it, is it accurate to say in shorthand? The um, machine is, when you think of shorthand, you think of right, scribbles. Right, strokes and all that. Right. Yeah, yeah. The machine actually produces letters. Those letters are entered into a dictionary, which produce the word on the computer. Okay. Is that relatively new? Uh, not, I would say 10, 15 years, it has become much more prominent in uh, the captioning, the closed captioning that you see on the bottom of the TV. When that 
it came to fruition, people didn't realize where that was coming from, but that's actually a court reporter that's producing that closed captioning. You mentioned to me before we went on the air that one of the reasons that uh, uh, you know, the equipment kind of expanded and there were some changes made was during the O.J. Simpson trial in 1995. Why? I think because of the caliber of that case, the media was able to be in that courtroom and um, it was uh, a high-profile case. People wanted to know what's going on. And um, it was after that that I think court reporters, too, became much more um, willing to learn real time. We had a question here from a listener who wanted to know, uh, if court reporters' records are later transcribed, why not just make an audio recording? And they have... Audio recordings have taken place in courtrooms. The problem with audio recording is it is as good as the person who's transcribing it can hear it. I've been in depositions already where they've been very contentious. Um, There may be a witness sitting to the side who utters something under his breath or her breath that they really don't want the other people to hear. The court reporter's ears can hear. If that microphone isn't right up against that person, um, it doesn't become part of the record. We have, court reporters as a whole have been told for the last 20 years that we are going to be replaced with digital recording, audio recording. Uh, there was a courthouse in Pennsylvania that did away with all court reporters' um, wired all their courtrooms with um, audio recording. The, cal- the, uh, the transcripts that they got from those audio recordings, some were unusable. Um, Timothy McVeigh, the bomber of the Oklahoma courthouse, they had, a, so they thought, an audio recording set up at his preliminary hearing. It didn't work. Today, there is no recording of Timothy McVeigh's preliminary hearing. So there are some jobs out there where humans are still needed, and hum- <laughs> human ears in particular. We only have about 30 seconds left, and this has been interesting. I hope that our, you, know, that, uh, you, the listener out there, has learned, uh, have, have learned some things here today about uh, uh, an occupation uh, that we, we kind of uh, take for granted. But the next time you're in a courtroom or uh, in a proceeding where there was a court reporter, um, that, uh, you know, you, 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 you pay a little bit more attention. Gail McLucas is part owner of GLFM Reporting LLC in uh, York County. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. I enjoyed the opportunity to be here. Coming up uh, on tomorrow's program. Now, this gets a little bit, um, I don't know, could be, I, I guess you'd say a little bit complex, but a revolutionary discovery last week, you probably heard about it, gravitational waves. We'll explain tomorrow.